1: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about conserving whales and oceans. In particular, we're going to be learning about orca whales. I'm really pleased with our guest today, Colleen Wyler, is the RICO's Fellow for Orca Conservation at the Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Hello, Colleen. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Well, I, was, I know you're, you're an Oregonian, you know, out there in Oregon, so I was really surprised yeah. to learn that you're in, you're in Duxbury today. What, what were you doing in Duxbury today?
3: I was. Um, I am... Over on the East Coast for a couple weeks to visit the rest of my colleagues at Whale and Dolphin Conservation, and we had a call about a possible whale sighting off of the coast pretty close to shore, so we drove up to Duxbury to take a look from the beach and see if we could find these whales and confirm what species they were, so we were out looking for whales.
2: So Duxbury Beach is one of the longest beaches in New England. Did, did you have a, a beach pass so you could take your vehicle out on the beach?
3: We, I don't think we had a beach pass. We didn't drive on the beach. We just right. drove down the really rocky road that kind of parallels the beach and, and got out at various overlooks to take a look.
2: Right. There's all these rocks that are berming up the, the land so that the barrier beach doesn't get... Um, washed over by the ocean. Cool. So um, uh, tell me about the Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Well, WDC
3: is an international organization. Um, We are a global nonprofit that's focused on protecting whales, dolphins, and their habitats worldwide. And our North American office is based here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And I actually work remotely out on the West Coast, so I am, it, it's, it's a interesting time for me to be over here on the East Coast and, and uh, dealing with the ocean being on the wrong side. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. it's been a good visit. <laughs> I have the same problem when I go to the West Coast, constantly <laughs> in my head and stuff. Yeah, you won't see too many sunsets over the water out here. <laughs> um, and so your expertise... or. It is uh, are the orca whales. And uh, tell us about the orca population worldwide. They're kind of a cosmopolitan whale, I'd say.
3: Yeah, so my job, um, as you said, is the Fellow for Orca Conservation. So I'm specifically focused on um, studying orca populations around the world and what we can do to increase protections for them. And as a species... Killer whales or orcas, we, re- we refer to them as orcas, are technically still considered one species, but you know, the more we learn about them and the more we you know dig into the genetics and the research, it kind of indicates that they actually might be different subspecies or even different species altogether. Um, so they are, as you said, a, a cosmopolitan whale. They're found in every ocean. They're pretty widely distributed, so we have the good fortune of seeing them in very many places. Um, but these are actually all kind of separate populations and and different types of orca. And without having the official designation yet of calling them different species or subspecies, we call them different ecotypes, which is kind of similar to a different, um, like in, in the Pacific Northwest, we kind of compare it to different tribes, um, you know, these 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 orcas are all different in what they eat, how they behave, and even how they look.
2: And they probably don't interbreed or interact much, right?
3: No, as as far as we can tell, the genetic, you know, and the genetic information, these ecotypes are all separate, and mm. they might overlap in space. They could live in the same area, but they don't interbreed, and they keep themselves pretty segregated
2: from one another. And, and so what... So how many uh, ecotypes do you think there are around the world? We know of at
3: least 10. There's uh, five we've ID'd down in the southern hemisphere around Antarctica and then another five in the northern hemisphere, but there's there's probably more. Um, There are some parts of the world where we know that there are orcas, but we don't know a whole lot about the ones that live there, especially in the tropics. Um, and in the Indian Ocean, we know that there are orcas there, but we don't see them very often, so we don't know enough about them to even know, you know, what they eat or how they live or what potential type of ecotype they are.
2: Wow, so you know about 10 populations, and then they're the ones you don't know so much about. So isn't that exciting? There's still much yeah. to learn.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool thing. It's one of my favorite things about orcas is that we think that they're all one big species, but they've found these really cool, unique ways to differentiate themselves and be their their very unique populations and communities. And they kind of figured out ways where they can all live together. But, you know, one of the, the big divisions between ecotypes is is diet. So it's based on what they eat. So while they might live in the same area, they're eating different things. They're avoiding directly competing with one another, and they've figured out these very specific niches that they can
2: fit into. Wow, it's like the Vikings settling in Greenland with the Eskimos living nearby.
3: I guess so. I don't know too much about that, but (laughs) if they found a way to do it, then,
2: yeah. Eric the Viking didn't like eating seafood, so he insisted that the Vikings bring cattle and cows and try to raise milk and dairy on the shores of Greenland, and they eventually lost out and had to leave while the Eskimos were living high on the land by eating fish and out of the bounty of the ocean, and their principals refused to let them eat seafood, so they had to leave or starve. (laughs) So they were definitely not competing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like people (laughs) wonder, well, why didn't the establishment stay? And it's like they could have seen what the Eskimos were doing, but it was simply they that they, they wanted to eat dairy and and, and beef and not um, seafood, perhaps because Eric himself had had a bad fish dinner or something. You
3: know?
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> that's um, funny because yeah, yeah, so that actually, really,
3: it, yeah, I know that that very, really does parallel orca populations because, you know, they are very, they're very cultural. And there's a lot of um, learning in these populations that passes from mother to offspring and a lot of, what they eat and how they behave and even how they communicate is based on what they learn from their family. So, yeah, kind of, if the, the Vikings didn't want to learn how to eat seafood, um, some populations of workers don't want to learn to either.
2: <laughs> right. And then the Vikings built these stone hives to store their, their dairy products in and the Eskimos had no need for that, you know, and the, you know, so you, you, you start with food and you, like you said, you get these whole new cultures coming out of this whole new ways of living as, Tied back to our, our food sources. That's really interesting. Tell us more about the southern residents. That is kind of your specialty. Sure. So uh, we'll
3: we'll start in the eastern North Pacific, which is off the west coast of the U.S. and Canada, um, where I live and the, the primary population that I that I work with. Um, and over there, we have three distinct ecotypes of orcas and in this area um, off the west coast is kind of where we really started to learn about orcas and figure out that there were these different ecotypes. It started about 40 to 50 years ago when they began to look into these orcas and kind of tried to figure out how many we actually had off the west coast um, and then discovered that there were actually these very distinct populations and groups that were eating different things and behaving in different ways uh, and even looked a little bit different. And that research was all kind of started because there was this big effort off the West Coast to capture orcas and bring them into captivity. That was kind of the start of the whole marine park industry. And after about 10 years of these very targeted, intense captures, the state of Washington and the federal government thought, you know, maybe we should count these whales and see how many are actually out there and that's when they made this discovery that there are three distinct and separate types of orcas off the west coast um, so we have the residents which are the southern residents are part of that ecotype which are fish eaters they are only, they only eat fish um, and they're called residents because they've kind of evolved to rely on these very um, reliable sources of of fish and so they tend to stay in one area for really long periods of time. We have transients or bigs orcas, which are the marine mammal eaters, and they're called we started off calling them transients because they move around a lot more. Um, they're eating prey that is also very smart and very intelligent and can detect the orcas in the area so they have to kind of move around a little bit more when the prey in, in one specific area kind of gets wise to them and knows that they're there. Uh, and then we have offshore orcas, which we don't see very often. They live offshore, hence the name offshore. And we're pretty sure that those guys are eating sharks and other fish species. And Interesting. the resident yeah. ecotype, yeah, um, is further divided into different populations. So we have the southern residents, which are the southernmost population, they're found mostly off the coast of Washington. They're pretty well known around the San Juan Islands and down by Seattle. In fact, they were just spotted a couple days ago uh, in Puget Sound off of Seattle. Um, the northern residents are farther north, and then we have Alaskan residents off the coast of Alaska.
2: So I'm trying to keep a scorecard here. So we've got three, <laughs> three um, what you call them, ecotones? Eco- ecotypes. Um, three ecotypes. And Mm -hmm. then the fish-eating ecotype breaks into three groups, the southern, the northern, and the Alaskan.
3: Yeah, and then the Alaskan residents are further broken down into a couple of different populations. There's a lot more up there. Uh, The northern residents are one population of about 300 whales, and then we have the southern residents, which are only at 76 individuals right now. Um, Unfortunately, they are endangered, and they're the only orca population on the endangered species list in the U.S.
2: And how many in the next one that's not so bad
3: off? Uh, The northern residents have about 300.
2: So if if you clear 300, you're you're not considered endangered, I guess.
3: They are listed as threatened in Canada. Um, under the, the Species at Risk Act. So there is definitely some right. concern for them in Canada. They were also targeted by the captivity industry, although not as intensely as the Southern residents were. The Southern residents had about 50 individuals in their population that were either taken and sold into captivity or um, unfortunately died in the capture efforts. So both Yikes. populations were considered at risk uh, when we started to figure out, you know, that there were these different groups of orcas, but the northern residents have been recovering a lot better. There's still concern over kind of the same worries we have with the southern residents in terms of, um, you know, these these are both fish-eating groups of orcas, so and they both specialize on salmon um, and salmon in the west, you know, in the west coast region is also an endangered species in many areas. There's concerns about prey depletion. Uh, they both live in very urban and well-developed areas, so there's concerns about pollutants and toxins in the water and noise from shipping and vessels and harassment. Um, but the northern residents are are doing a little bit better than the southern residents. They've rebounded a lot better than their their relatives to the south have.
2: And so they're in the the islands in British Columbia. It's where the northern residents live.
3: Yeah, they um, their range is kind of from the northern end of Vancouver Island up to southeast Alaska. So they're mm. in a little bit more of a remote area than the southern residents. They're not quite as urban, um, and we don't see them quite as much as we see the southern residents. But enough enough to know that there's about three hundred, and that they're so far doing pretty well
2: right you haven't got as much effort looking for them up there so it, the, the lack of sightings is not due to a lack of number of whales
3: no yeah it's it's just a lot more remote um, so
2: yeah. it's harder to, to see them well I'm sure that lots of listeners would be happy to have you pay their way to go up there and with a kayak and look around for whales for you <laughs> I would love to do that too that sounds great <laughs> Now, do you go up in airplanes and survey for whales, or how do you find orcas? How do you count orcas?
3: Well, luckily, these guys are pretty close to land, so a lot of observations are land-based, and there's some beautiful spots uh, on San Juan Island and even around Seattle where people can see them just standing on shore. The dedicated survey effort out there by the Center for Whale Research, which is the, the primary research group studying the southern residents. Um, they'll send mm-hmm. boats out and go, you know, ID the whales and and count them and see who is with who. But for the most part, you can you can do a
2: lot from land. Well, that's cool. And you can tell the individual whales also, apart, oops, so they know the go individual. Ahead. <laughs> you can tell the individual whales apart, and they, they know individual whales. That's how they got 76?
3: Yeah, so uh, with orcas... We can tell who's who by the shape of their dorsal fin and by their saddle patch, which is that area of white that's right behind their dorsal fin. And it's, it's like a thumbprint. It's unique to every individual. Um, it stays pretty much the same throughout their life. It might change with, uh, like, some scars or injuries or, or something, but it stays pretty consistent. And so we know who's who. Um, We can tell what the family groups are, and residents are very social. The offspring, both male and female, stay with their mom for their whole lives. They live in these uh, female-driven, we call them matrilines. They live in these Mm. family groups, and both, you know, all, all the kids stay with mom for as long as they or she lives, and they all work together to eat salmon, and they're... They they're sharers. <laughs> They'll catch salmon and pass it around and break it apart and share with each other. So they're they're very social. Um, and yeah, another reason why we call them residents because they they're found in these really big groups and they stick together.
2: Well, we talk about breaking bread together, but I haven't heard of breaking salmon together. That's one.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that's actually kind of that that little. Sharing behavior that they do has helped us to figure out what they're eating, because they're kind of they're not sloppy eaters. When they're they're breaking apart salmon, researchers can come in and collect prey scales and samples, because it's you know when they're breaking apart, little bits float away, and so we can get a very clear picture of what kind of fish they're eating, and sometimes even what specific run the salmon's are coming from.
2: That's amazing. That's great. You can get that kind of information yeah. about specific rivers that um, they're taking salmon from. Uh, Colleen, we're going to take a short break, and I'm talking with Colleen Weiler, and we're going to come back. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about the other populations of um, orcas that are a little farther south of you there. So we'll be right back.
1: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate the number four oceans.org. G.
1: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our
2: friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Hi, we're talking about orca whales, and Colleen Weiler is my guest from the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, and we're learning that although orcas may look all the same to us, they, they really hang out in distinctive population groups that may actually be you know subspecies or um, because they've just been so distinctive in, in their feeding behaviors and uh, all kind, their social behaviors that um, table observers like Colleen are able to tell. Uh, pretty quickly, which, which group this, these whales belong in. So we've been talking about, you know, the whales down around Washington and down to Oregon, which predominantly are the uh, fish-eating whales. Um, but let's talk about the whales further south. Tell us about the transient orcas or bigs orcas.
3: So the, the transient or the bigs orcas are the marine mammal eaters. Um, so they are out there eating seals and sea lions on the West Coast, they might also target dolphins or purposes or even calves of larger whale species. And as their name suggests, transient, they move around a lot more, and their range is pretty much from southern or central California uh, up to Alaska. We might see groups of whales traveling that far. And especially down around Monterey, they're really well known for um, foraging and hunting gray whale calves. There's a very specific season when the gray whales are migrating north back up to the Bering Sea and Arctic waters to feed and they pass through Monterey Bay Um, and that's a a kind of high risk area for these gray whales going north because there are big Zorcas waiting to
2: go after the calves. And I hear there was an instance where humpback whales came in and helped well that's that's an interesting thing.
3: We have a lot of anecdotal reports of humpbacks actually coming in and disrupting orca hunts. They've seen it in several places in the world. They see it down in Antarctica, uh, in Monterey and even up in in British Columbia. for whatever reason, you know we're, there's still a lot of debate over why exactly humpbacks do this, but they'll come in and get in the way of the orcas and actually prevent them from continuing their, their predation and, and going after a variety of, of species. They've disrupted hunts on seals, uh, on felines, sea and on calves of even different species of whales. So it's a pretty remarkable behavior, and I've, I've been lucky enough to actually see it happen. It was just amazing. Wow! Um, but we don't really know why they do it.
2: <laughs> what did you see happen? What's that? What did you see happen? What did you see happen with uh, humpbacks coming in to help?
3: Um, we were, I was up in British Columbia and watching some transient or bigs. We, we call them bigs orcas, named after Michael Big, who is kind of the father of orca research in the area. So, sorry, I'll, I'll go back and forth between the two, but I'm trying to stick to bigs orcas. Um, but okay. we just saw some bigs orcas trying to take down a big stellar sea lion And these are very large sea lions. They're the biggest ones in the northern hemisphere. So it's a lot of hard work for the orcas and it's pretty dangerous prey to go after. And so we were watching them for about 20 minutes doing various, they'll they'll try to tire out a sea lion that they're going after or try to injure it by ramming it or smashing their tails on it. Um, And the reason that they do this is because the sea lion is dangerous. It can bite them. It can hit them. It it will fight back. And they don't want to just swim in and and chomp it in half because they would lose some pretty vital parts of the prey if they did that. Like every part is important. Mm -hmm. Um, So they usually try to tire out or or drown their prey before they actually, again, they'll divide it up and share it amongst the family group. Um, So they will, you know, they'll, You'll see them trying to do that for quite some time before they're they're actually successful. And uh, so this group of orcas was um, working for quite some time on this stellar sea lion, and a humpback from the other side of the strait just kind of came charging through the middle and just got between the orcas and the stellar sea lion and disrupted the hunt. And they were not successful and stuck around for a little oh my while gosh. while the sea lion made it to shore and uh, eventually swam away and I guess looked, looked somewhere else for dinner.
2: Like wearing a mask, like a long ranger or something?
3: <laughs> he wasn't wearing a mask, but he was trumpeting. <laughs> so it was a, a very angry humpback. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's a behavior that is observed and we can't really say exactly why they do it. It's pretty interesting, but
2: we don't really know what it means. What do you mean trumpeting? Could you hear them above the water? or Did you have hydrophones out?
3: We had hydrophones out, but we could actually hear it above the water as well. Um, Trumpeting humpbacks will kind of make a lot of noise as they're exhaling, so it's kind of like a really forceful exhale. And okay. they usually do that when they're excited or angry about something. So
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. A disturbed humpback. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, it was pretty um, incredible to witness. Yeah. Yeah, if you filmed it, they thought it, they would have thought it was staged, you know. You paid the whale acting <laughs> money or something. Um, yeah. Incredible. Um that reminds me of a uh, time that I had the good fortune to go out on a whale watch with some people from Monterey, and we saw six or eight orcas. And they weren't usually, I see orcas, they're they're busy going out. They're, probably they're fish eating ones because it's up farther north, but they all seem very purposefully going in one direction or another as if they're going about chasing fish or something. And these whales were swimming back and forth in a in, uh, kind of crisscrossy pattern as we got close. We discovered that there was a a young harbor seal in the middle, and he looked like a beach volleyball. That he was just kind of bobbing in the water, and the whale would swoop up and and kind of brush him on the side, so he would tend to rotate, you know. And then another whale would come in a different direction. Um, There was a little tiny calf whale, and as the boat, when the boat was close, the uh, the seal came right over and hit, sheltered under the bow of the boat. And then the whales were just swimming back and forth under the boat, but not plucking at the seal himself and This other mm-hmm. boat was a whale watching boat, and they were out there um, to just photograph it, so they were not happy that w- there was this that we were in the middle of their marlon perkins wild animal kingdom moment, you know for their bazooka <laughs> cameras and stuff, so they 're telling us you know back away from the do- back away from the seal let em, let nature take its course, you know and, we were saying the seal's not too happy about that. You know, he's a man too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we looked over at the um, at the whale watch boat, and there was an adult harbor seal sheltering under its bow. So we said, "Well, how about you back away from your seal and stuff?" And so they did. And of course, then they were too far away from us, so they stopped, and their seal went back to them. And eventually, <laughs> we tried we tried lowering our swim platform on the back of the boat. Uh, to see if, a whale, if the seal would climb out on it but he stayed right up in the bow we backed the boat off um, about 50 feet and, and when the boat propellers engaged the seal didn't do anything he just stayed where he was and the boat just moved away from him but as soon as we cut the engines the, uh, the seal came right back to us and stuff and the whales kept swimming underneath us so we did that I think twice and then we just had to back away and leave the, the seal to his fate but I was yeah. amazed that there would be a parent seal right there at the same time.
3: Yeah, that's something that's pretty commonly observed around the big orcas. If, if they're going after a seal or a sealine and there's boats nearby, the seals will definitely try mm. to shelter under or even on the boats. Um, and they'll, you know, they're trying to protect themselves. And the, the behavior you described for the orcas with the, the crisscrossing and the bumping, um, that's pretty common, you know, foraging behavior when they're blocking the escape path of the seal or the sea lion with the crisscrossing and they're hitting it and bumping it again to try to tire it out or to um, cause some internal injury so it can't get away. And well, look totally definitely, yeah, I mean, it's,
2: yeah.
3: it's a hard thing to watch and human nature is definitely to protect the cute, adorable seal, which... <laughs> is hard for me too because I do love seals, um, but it's it's a I know it's a tough decision. Do you stay and help the seal, or at least give them some shelter in your boat until the orcas give up, or do you kind of let nature take its course?
2: Um, yeah, you don't think the orcas are likely to give up either.
3: Sometimes they do. I mean, if if people oh, really? are patient and you. Kind of hang out for a while and let the seal hide under your boat. Sometimes they'll move on and try to find some better luck somewhere else, and sometimes they'll Mm. just wait it out. So, (laughs) yeah. Depends on how hungry they are.
2: Well, yeah, and, you know, whether it's two hours or four hours or one hour or four hours or something, uh, we weren't going to hang out there for an hour. So um, now I feel a little bad about not hanging out longer. Has anyone ever um, transported a seal? Like had a seal climb on the boat and they. They transport it closer to shore or something? I've
3: I've heard of it, um, and I'm sure there's probably videos on YouTube of people doing that and trying to be good Samaritans and help seals, even though in both cases, approaching orcas and seals is a violation of the Mammal Protection Act, and we we definitely don't recommend it um, just no. for the safety of, no, that, that of the humans we, that seal climbed yeah, onto but, our boat.
2: If that yeah. seal had climbed onto our boat, the other boat would have prosecuted us for violating the Marine Mammal Protection Act. You know, because they would have Probably. lost our photographic yeah, they, and stuff. They would oh yeah, tried, they would not be happy. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't <laughs> an option. The whale didn't the seal didn't come on and uh, that would have been interesting. An interesting court case It would have been good PR for the orcas, I guess, if they got <laughs> pulled into court for uh, you know, people you know <laughs> Um, yeah,
3: and there's there's always the danger, too, if a seal is hiding under your boat and you turn your propellers on, that could injure the seal. Um, so, you know, you always yeah, want to be careful. I have heard that ever happening. You're I think it's to help, pretty but, savvy, but Yeah. Yeah.
2: You're right. You shouldn't just gun your engines away from the seal. It's not a good idea.
3: Right. Yeah, <laughs> but I have heard of people very slowly motoring closer to some rocks or sh- the shore with a seal hiding. On their on their oh, swim stuff, the like what yeah. you guys tried to do, yeah, or from the bow, or even on on kayaks and and stuff. Um, I've I've heard of it. It's, you know, I I understand it's coming from a good place, but it's <laughs> always a little yeah, cringy. Yeah, we were so far
2: offshore; it wasn't an option. The only option was if the yeah. way, if the seal climbed on the boat, it could have been moved. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. The good thing is, is that orcas are smart enough not to flip over a kayak when they're zooming all around and stuff, but. Um, it, those are pretty daunting animals, and I would not be comfortable in a kayak, even though, yeah, especially with mammal-eating dog orcas. I'm sorry.
3: Well, I'm yeah, I mean they've they've never injured or killed a person in the wild. They seem to know the diff. You know, they definitely know the difference between yeah. people and prey, and they seem to understand to not flip boats or kayaks. They'll come close and check people out, but they they don't really go after anything like that um they definitely could and it's probably definitely intimidating to be given a close pass when you're on a kayak or a small boat but i think they're well it's intimidating
2: just because they could bumble they could just not not yeah yeah you know it's not nobody thinks they're malicious toward humans but it's just they're so powerful and you know yeah what are they like 27 feet long so it's like this is a lot of power (laughs) that you know you could just you know, it's elephants and butterflies. <laughs> you could be the yeah. butterfly without knowing it, uh, even yeah. though they're well-intentioned and stuff. Uh, Susan well, the, Black is with the, the, the cool thing about Bay.
3: being up oh, in the San Juan Islands is on land, like they, they'll come within a few feet of shore um, on certain parts of the island, so you can just sit there and have that same feeling of just awe at how big and how powerful and majestic they are without having to fear for your safety in a kayak. So <laughs>
2: Right, The cool thing to see. Or the whale watch boats are are just fabulous. Um, I highly recommend that. Susan Black with the Monterey Bay Whale Watch saw a line of orcas go at a blue whale. That was pretty amazing. Did you hear about that story?
3: I did, yeah. That was uh, just this past spring.
2: Yeah, last May, I guess. And apparently mm-hmm. you know they don't they don't go after adult blue whales, so they were just having some fun or something
3: yeah, again, it's one of those behaviors that we just, we don't really know. Um, they could have been trying to chase it away from something or harassing it, um, getting a little bit rowdy, but they yeah, as you said, they don't typically go after adults of really any big whale species because that is going to be way too big for them so that one yeah. was a, a an
2: unusual event yeah very unusual and isn't it wonderful that that whales orcas are un, are kind of we don't completely know why they do things they're not like robots where there's a reason for it well yeah there's just there's some mysteries out there and isn't that wonderful
3: yeah it's um, um pretty neat to learn more about them and figure out exactly what we don't know
2: yeah, so what are some of the questions that people are working on?
3: Um, well, stuff like that is <laughs> pretty cool, kind of yeah. as we learn more about them and see these unique behaviors, maybe why they do what they do. We're still trying to figure yeah. out in some of those areas what kinds of orcas live there. Uh, there's ones around Hawaii that we don't see very often and we don't know exactly what they eat or if they have a social structure that's like the residents where they live in these big family groups or if it's more like the bigs orcas that still live in family groups but live in much smaller family groups and you you do see some dispersal away from the mom and in bigs orcas she might keep um, a couple offspring with her and they, they might live in groups of anywhere from three to six or seven of a related family and we just don't know if the orcas in Hawaii live that way or in different groups um, or the ones around, you know, in the, in the Indian Ocean, there's orcas in the Gulf of Mexico, but we just don't know enough about them yet to say how they live, what they
2: eat, or really what they do. Right. Elusive whales. Yeah. I'm I'm talking with Colleen Weiler, and uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what you, as a listener, can do for Orca Whales.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science
0: on a cape cod shore 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead killed by a harmful algal bloom the town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water they restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year the state overruled mandating five times a year Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org.
1: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Hi, we're talking with Colleen Weiler, of the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, WDC. And we've been learning all about different tribal groups or or, uh, super species of um, orca whales, that there are southern residents and northern residents and Alaskan residents and bigs orcas. And um, Colleen, how can people learn, learn more about the orcas and what can we do?
3: Well, we have a lot of information on our website, whales.org. We'll take you to WDC's webpage, and we have all kinds of information on the different ecotypes of orcas and on our work to protect southern residents and what we're doing um, kind of to address the different threats to that population.
2: Great, because we've been hearing about them, so it would be nice to, Mm -hmm. A, see pictures of them, and, B, uh, find something to do. Uh, What... What are some of the problems they're facing?
3: Kind of the the top three threats for the southern residents are prey depletion because, as we said, you know they specialize on fish. About 80% of their diet is salmon. They're very picky eaters, and the majority of that is actually Chinook salmon. So it's one specific type of salmon that they target more than any other type, and that's because Chinook salmon are the biggest and fattiest Salmon, so they're kind of going after the energy bars of fish, hmm. and Chinook is unfortunately also endangered throughout their range and all these these different runs and different rivers of um, of salmon. So prey depletion is a big issue. Also, toxic contamination. Uh, unfortunately, they're still impacted by. Pollutants like DDT and PCBs, even though those have been banned for decades now, they are still present in our oceans, and it kind of builds up through the food web in what we call bioaccumulation, um, and ends up stored in the blubber of these whales because they are the the top predators of their habitat. Um, and as the the threats kind of interact in a negative feedback loop, and as they Struggle to find food and burn through their body fat, they metabolize these toxins and release them into their system. Um, And they also, since they live in a very urban area, it's very noisy. There's a lot of shipping, there's a lot of vessel traffic. So they're also impacted by noise and harassment from shipping and from vessels. So those are kind of the the top three problems that the southern residents are facing.
2: And I hear that since the whales feed their calves milk, that there's some dumping of toxins into, from the females into the calves through the milk. At least I found that in humpback whales and sperm whales, and they were finding, you know, more toxins in the male whales than the females because the females were able to start off the young with some toxic milk.
3: Yeah, um, unfortunately, and, oh, it's, it's, it is the same for the orcas, oh, the especially for, yeah. yeah, for firstborn calves in particular because as the moms metabolize their fat to support the growth and, and feeding and nursing their calves, they're kind of giving them a big offload of toxins right away. So it's a, <clears throat> me, it's a pretty unfortunate, again, with that
2: feedback loop. So what can people do in terms of pollution to help the orcas? In terms of pollution? To, what um, can people do? Excuse me. Yeah, (laughs) take your time. Fighting
3: a cold here.
2: (laughs) Oh, no. Welcome to the East Coast.
3: Yeah, too much flying. (laughs) Um, In terms of pollution, you know, people can cut back on pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, different things they're using and putting on their lawns, Um, cut back on use of plastics and any microplastics or, or, like, small beads and cosmetic products.
2: Yeah. It's really important that that we look at, you know, what we're permitting to flow off of our properties or that we're putting into onto the streets or, um, you know, it's very important that we stem the flow of these – because most of these pollutants are coming off the land, and we're responsible for it. So uh, we urge people to um, – look around, you know, what yard actions can you do in your own backyard for clean water uh, to prevent that, you know, whether it be um, using a bucket to wash your car instead of a hose or putting up, you know, rain barrels to collect the rain from your roof so that you don't have to uh, use additional water and, of course, you know, don't overwater things and so on. And, of course, you know, we have a big campaign here at Ocean River Institute about please don't put excessive fertilizer on your lawns because those nutrients cause harmful algal blooms, and then as Colleen was saying, you know you've got uh, pesticides and herbicides, and they've got things that aren't good in there. And uh, in the Gulf of Maine, we're finding some evidence that phytoplankton's not doing so well, and it's not for lack of nutrients that phytoplankton ain't doing well, but it could be from the the washout of um, of of pesticides and herbicides, herbicides in particular, you know, coming off of increasing lawns and more landscapes that we have in our shorelines here or watersheds. Um, Colleen, um, and you were telling me earlier, Oh, well, we're running out of time. So let's go. I was going to, you were saying earlier, you know, and I guess you said it well, that, you know, if you're going to eat salmon, look carefully at what salmon you are buying because you don't want to be depriving the orcas of food. Um, but you want to be eating salmon from elsewhere so that that's not a problem. And then um, yeah, what are yeah, some of the um, big... I want to move We're short on time. What, what are some of the big items that WDC is working on? What are your big focal item areas that people will see when they go to your website?
3: Well, the southern residents fall under our focus area of homes for whales and making sure that they have mm. you know, a safe space to live in. Um, we also work on uh, bycatch issues and whaling and ending captivity around the world. So our different offices kind of focus on, on different things, and they'll see all of that at our website, which is whales.org.
2: Yeah, I recommend that people go to whales.org. Uh, there's just a smorgasbord of different things, information about different whale species, and, um, and also a call for action that um, Mike Johnson is a uh, Republican from Louisiana, a representative, and he's introduced this bill, that um, is gonna wreak havoc with the Marine Mammals Protection Act. And it's called Streamlining Environmental Approvals Act. And the whole intention is to streamline the process of uh, coast restoration so that you don't have to worry about impacting the whales and um, not fettering the, the Navy in any way with their uh, seismic blasting and you know not to interrupt any of their operations which the Navy has been very good about working with, but politically it sounds like, you know, we need this bill to free the Navy to do its business. And most of all, we don't want to be, he doesn't want to slow down any oil and gas exploration. So this is a really terrible bill, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, this this bill is essentially a wish list of the oil and gas industry to fast-track approval of seismic airgun surveys and would allow them to... Bypass the harassment authorizations under the MMPA um, and hurt really large numbers of whales and dolphins in a pretty big area of the ocean. So it's a very dangerous bill. Um, It significantly harms the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is a, a landmark piece of legislation. So we are asking people to go to our website. There's a link to our info page on it, and there's kind of a list of actions you can do to help us fight this bill.
2: It's really important because the whales are being hurt by seismic testing. The whales are being hurt by bycatch and getting entangled in fishing gear and, you know, harmful algal blooms that foster skin-eating fungal infections on the dolphins and, um, you know, and all these other pollution things we've been talking about. It's really important not to put holes, loopholes into the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So please, please, please go to the... Um, uh, whales.org and and make a stand on this um, HR 3133 bill. It's all spelled out there. Many environmental groups are working to oppose this bill, including the Ocean River Institute. Uh, at the Ocean, Institute, Ocean River Institute here, we're also taking the lead on stopping ship strikes killing sperm whales in the new Northeast Canyons and Seamount Marine National Monument. So if you want to know more about sperm whales dying to ship strikes in off of Nantucket, um, visit our website, oceanriver.org. You can drop me an email, rob at org. And Colleen, um, it's been really great having you on the show. And um, I understand that your colleague, uh, Regina Asma Sylvia is coming uh, next week to talk more about the plight of the right whale.
3: Yeah, they've had a really rough summer too um the north atlantic right whales well, here off the east coast and she hopefully will be out next week and and share some information on those guys
2: yes it, it sounds very exciting um colleen i hope you make it back from uh, duxbury back home to oregon safely and soundly <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um any final thoughts for our listeners about orcas
3: uh, I don't know. What can I say about orcas? They're, they're pretty incredible. Go orcas. Um, yeah, they're, they're really amazing. I feel very lucky to work on protecting orcas around the world. And the more I learn about them, the more they amaze me. So thanks for having me on today. I always love to talk about orcas and <laughs> it's always fun to, uh, to chat about them.
2: And if people want to communicate with you, uh, can they reach you through your website or what's the best way?
3: Yeah, they can go to whales.org and anything orca related will have a link to me so they can find my contact information on the website. And, you know, we're also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So look for us on there. There's links to all of those on the website and they can tweet us questions and we're happy to answer them.
2: Well, thank you, Colleen. We've, Spend another hour doing the same thing we do every day, trying to save the oceans and make a healthier oceans and seas and watersheds for all of us. Thank you all for listening. Please take care and then try to take a moment to take care of our planet.
1: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.